Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you are joining us. It is episode 120, and we are coming to you Sunday, April 4th at about 4.15 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, happy Easter. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Um, Todd, I was texting you all last night. Jalen Suggs. I mean... Yeah, if you want a reason to pick him number one overall in the NBA draft, like that, that game is his showcase. That yeah. block, full court, bounce pass, all within five seconds, like, boom, done. <laughs> and then, and then the, the, the coach knows that, oh, he's taking a shot from half court for the game. It's going in. Zach, were you, you were watching, right? Oh, you know, I, I was just uh, not really caring. No, of course I was watching. Who wasn't watching that? <laughs> That was the best college football game or basketball I've ever seen. That was uh, that was amazing. And um, first of all, I was texting Todd too. What did you think about learning that Jaime Hakez's parents went are Concordia alum? I think that's the big story out of the game. I didn't. I, I didn't hear that. Eric, I, I must, must have missed that part. Concordia, Irvine. But but oh, no, the, 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 still Concordia. The truth is, though, that was the greatest college basketball game I've ever seen. And I had no respect for UCLA going into that game. I thought Todd and I were texting that they were the worst Final Four team ever. They completely obliterated that. My hat's off to them. Go Bruins, I guess. They but couldn't they, they, miss a shot. In the they spirit, couldn't miss. It was like Bill Walton had incarnated himself in the spirit of that team. And uh, it, was, it was a spectacular sight to behold. It is a conference of champions, but uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. The, the best college basketball champions. game I've ever seen, I always say, is uh, the second Butler team that made it to the finals, uh, the 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 8-1 matchup between them and Pittsburgh. That, that was, was the best game. game I've ever seen. It was the highest quality basketball uh, college basketball game I've ever seen. But this was right up there because, I mean, th- there were, what, they, I saw 19 lead changes. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it was just – and both teams, like, the, their combined – Shooting percentage was the highest since 1985 in a Final Four game. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, that yeah, game was it, insane. <laughs> it had all the makings of an upset, except Gonzaga's just that good. Like Todd texted me at halftime and said, UCLA just had their best half of the season and they're down by one. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all you got to say. And I, I also texted him that you know you're a good team when there's a five way debate on who your best player is. Well, <laughs> you know who's happiest, the big winner out of this whole game is Adam Morrison. Because now whenever we talk about UCLA Gonzaga, we're not going to have to show him crying anymore. We're going to show true. Jalen Suggs instead. It's true. It's true. Uh, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, uh, it is uh, in the middle of award season. Uh, make sure that you are subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast so more people can hear our discussions as we get closer and closer to the Oscars. Uh, I know Todd and Adam just recorded a podcast yesterday for Daily Notes. That'll be on our channel where uh, they discuss their uh, their Independent Spirit Award ballots. Are you allowed they are- to do that? 
I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> voting closes on Friday, so I, I really don't think it's an issue. I mean, There's no there's embargo like, or anything, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I never got any thing that said I couldn't disclose what I was going to be voting for. So you're not like that anonymous, you know, Oscars leaker to the Hollywood Reporter every year who complains about, you know, all these young themed movies. Whatever happened to John Wayne? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's the Spirit Awards. (laughs) The the rules mean a little less at the Spirit Awards, I think. (laughs) I I even we even ranked uh, how how we uh, are each category too. So that was that it was fun. It it was it'll be a fun listen uh, once it comes out. Yeah. So before, but um. You, before this comes out, you will have that available to you. I'm actually posting it as soon as we're done recording, so uh, so that'll be out later on today. Do you have the ability as voting members to nominate Lifetime Achievement Award recipients? Because you both should nominate Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Anything to get him back on stage. Yeah, uh, I don't. I know we don't. Or Eric like, Roberts. We we actually don't even get to uh, decide the nominations. We only get to decide the winners. So, which is kind of unfortunate but i mean it i mean it i mean i guess it doesn't matter last year on cut gems would have won everything anyway so (laughs) (laughs) so uh so uh listen to the podcast but todd i just want to get one thing from you was there one category where you and adam were like polar opposite on something like what was your biggest discrepancy of any category i know it's i know it's rare that the two of you disagree on something so you know this is kind of big well, I, I don't think we, we disagreed and necessarily on any winners. Like, uh, it would be like I had something second, he would have a fifth or something like that. It, it wasn't like a, a crazy disagreement, but uh, he, he also hadn't seen everything yet. So it was, it, it was a little, mm. it was a little iffy. Okay. My favorite category is best for a screenplay, though. There, there's some really good stuff there. Nice, nice. All right. Well, yeah, make sure that uh, you subscribe, rate, review so uh, that can be heard. This is uh, we're on uh, Apple Podcasts. I know graphics, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, uh, Spotify. And I like course, how uh, YouTube Daily Notes is just a little smaller than almost sideways. It's nice. A subliminal <laughs> dig there. Just a little bit, you know, Real, yeah, the funny thing is Adam's the one that made that graphic. So, oh, OK. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's. He, Maybe we can read into that or something. Self-humility there or something. Well, it, yeah, it's like the, uh, the Red and Brown podcast. <laughs> the, the Evan Williams. Yeah, yeah, the, the Evan Williams to our... Well, that is a perfect lead way. It, uh, lead into uh, what are we drinking? Uh, Zach, what, what beverage are you partaking of for our podcast today? Agua Fria. Agua Fria. Too many drunk I, dials. I love how it's always in a Starbucks cup. Like, do you go to Starbucks to get that? Or oh, do you no, just this have is, Starbucks cup? This Starbucks is the same cup, cup that's made multiple appearances on this show. And the germs inside it. So it's like a it's like a supporting character. It wins uh, Big Tim, High Roller, Minor Character podcast. Do you only have a straw so you don't spill it on yourself? No, I think it's more fun to drink with a straw. Because if I don't drink with a straw, who who doesn't like drinking with a straw? I mean, when given a choice, the straw is always the uh, the optimal option, right? It's like you're sucking on a baby schwanz, or whatever that quote is. <laughs> Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, this is uh, white rum with pineapple juice and cran blackberry juice. So it kind of tastes like a Jolly Rancher, honestly. It's really good. 
I was going to say the sugar content probably <laughs> off the roof in that. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I have, uh, I went to the brewery and got, uh, their latest brew that they just came out with. So this is Ridgewalker Brewery, Forest Grove, Oregon. Shout out to them. Go check them out if you haven't done so yet. Uh, if you're in the area, uh, this is their, uh, flatten the nerve, uh, West coast IPA. And because of baseball starting up this week, I'm wearing my Mariners shirt and it's the return of the baseball bat mug. So there we go. That's what we're going with. Even though it's last year's team and half these guys don't play for the Mariners anymore, I'm still drinking out of it. Okay, the quote I said was actually from Crazy Stupid Love. You guys should have known that. You like that movie more than I do. <laughs> he tells him, don't use a straw. And then he's like, looks like you're sucking on a tiny schwanz. I don't know. I only watched the scene in that movie where they all get in the fight on the mini, mini golf course. I don't remember that other scene. <laughs> or the male makeover. A mini golf? Isn't that the backyard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into. Yeah, we we really have. It doesn't take long. All right. Well, what have we been watching? Zach, you're first. What did you watch this week? Okay. Well, I want to. uh, Okay. Well, I did watch a Netflix movie called The Block Island Sound, which was stupid. I don't want to talk about it. But I do want to mention. So Todd has his gimmick of Nicolas Cage. Terry has his gimmick of, you know, best makeup winner from 36 years ago or whatever. (laughs) I have. A new gimmick that I'm launching today. Yes. Get ready, influencer. This is. I had to collaborate with Adam on this a little bit. We had to think of some ways to 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 uh, you know um, pitch it. But here it goes. I am going to review from here on out a new Criterion Collection release every week, and it has to be a film that I have not seen. The more obscure, the better, because if it's not about the hits, then what are we doing this for, right? So this week's criteria, now normally I will try to have the copy of the Blu-ray or DVD that I watch. This week, unfortunately, it was something that I had rented from the library, and I'm a good little German soldier. I like to return things on time, but I should have kept it. It is a, speaking of German, it is a German film from 1975 that I had never really heard of before called The Lost Honor of Katharina Blum. Um, and it is directed by Volker Schlondorf and Margaret von Trotta. And Volker Schlondorf, actually, they're, they're both fairly well-known German directors. Volker Schlondorf actually did, I believe, some American movies. He did The Ninth Day. He also did Death of a Salesman with Dustin Hoffman. Um, the Lost Honor of Katharina Blum is uh, set in Berlin in the 1970s, a split East Berlin, West Berlin dynamic going on. And it is about this young woman, Katharina Blum, played by Angela Winkler, not Angela Merkel. And uh, at the beginning of the movie, she is partying and having a great time. And she meets this guy at the party and she goes and uh, he comes back to her place. He wins the biggest stick man of the movie, by the way. It turns out he is a terrorist who's associated with the Bader-Meinhof complex, which is another good movie, which is actually not on Criterion, but they were actually a real terrorist group in Germany in the 1970s. And so as a result, the police and the press become obsessed with Katharina Blum because was she hiding and abetting this terrorist? What was she doing? Well, let's tell, talk about her sex life a little bit. They kind of go into all these lurid details. Now, it does turn out that she does have a little bit of a leftist streak in her, but the truth is the movie is really about how, I guess, in the 1970s, 
Uh, particularly in West Germany, the police and the press were teamed up colluding to try to suppress any sort of, um, you know, civil disobedience. And it's kind of a, one of the rare movies that has gotten a Western uh, sort of distribution that is actually pretty critical of West German politics. Um, it's an interesting movie, especially in light of the fact that we just watched another 70s spy movie, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. This is a better movie. However, I do have to say it is a pretty dated movie in a lot of respects. It is very much in that 70s mold of uh, paranoia, almost like the parallax view and uh, you know all the presence men type. There's not a lot of music in this movie. The color scheme is really drab. Um, it's an interesting movie. It's like a two and a half star movie, but the reason why I watched it is because it's part of the Criterion Collection. So of course, in my segment now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the extra features. And as is true with a lot of Criterion movies, the extra features were actually better than the movie, okay? The best extra feature on it was a sit down with the directors, Volker Schlondorf and Margaret von Trotta. And the, first of all, they're two of the only married people that I've ever heard of that direct directed a movie. We have Valerie Ferris and that other guy, and I think they, they make movies too. But it's kind of interesting hearing them talk about it because they have very different ideas for what the movie was going to be. It was Von Trotta's first film, and actually she was thinking about being an act. Uh, she wanted to play the lead role in the movie. And there's like a hint of a little bit of jealousy uh, between her maybe and the actress. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into it a little much. Um, it's an it, it's it, the interviews in English, and uh, you know they talk a lot about uh, how the story evolved from this real life author Heinrich Boll and his experiences um, as a uh, publicized uh, you know celebrity in the seventies. Um, it just kind of makes me think. I don't know if I could ever direct a movie with my spouse. I don't know if I could ever direct a movie with anybody, but in particular my spouse, I think it would be really uh, uh, interesting. But maybe as a Criterion special feature, it would work. So a two and a half star movie, better than the one we watched a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I love the Criterion collection. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to more obscure, uh, particularly European, Asian, international movies uh, to talk about on this podcast. I like it. I like it. It's a good gimmick. It fits you. Exactly. Well, if the movie's boring, then you can watch the special features. That's that's the best thing about uh, the Criterion Collection. See, I I just want you to keep re reviewing German movies so we can hear you try and try and say the names in that German accent you got. Uh yes, I was looking <laughs> for Peter Simonischek, but uh, he did not make an appearance in this movie. Sadly, My after you said Victor Schlondorf for the third time, you started the next like half sentence was still in German, like. <laughs> like dialogue. <laughs> there are a lot of names. There's Catalina Bloom and Heinrich Boll. I don't know. That's all I got. I, I, yeah. I, I feel like that scene in Funny People when uh, Adam Sandler's like the movie where you kill Bruce Willis. So uh, that's every, every time I hear German names. That's what I think. I I want to know how how long it's going to be until you subscribe to the Criterion channel. I, I only do physical media. I, I refuse to do anything Ooh. as we talk about a Netflix movie in 10 minutes. But, you know, <laughs> that aside, I try. I like the physical media. I'm, I'm old school. He likes the physical media. He hates that I don't actually have here. It's invisible. You know, he hates anything but, that isn't a masterpiece that he has to go to the movies for. But it's true. But yeah. OK. Cool. All right. I like the gimmick. Let's keep it up. Mm -hmm. I like that one. All right. Well, it's time for my gimmick. So uh, my my Oscar anniversary watch, uh, going back ten years, and I don't know if you're going to get this, but we can try. Uh, it it is a lone nominee for best animated film, 
and it is French. That's what I'm giving you. From 10 years ago? From 10 years ago. So 2010, best animated film, and it's Have French. any of us seen it? Uh, Todd and Adam have seen it, according to the website. Uh, uh, I was, gave it three stars. Adam there? gave it two and a half. What? When Marnie was there? Nope. Is that French? No. And was not nominated that year? Oh, I, I'm probably in the wrong year. I, I don't know. 2011 was the year Rango won. Anyways, it is A Cat in Paris. Oh, that's right. A Cat in Paris, yes. Uh, this was um, directed by Jean-Luc Felicoli, Fel- Felicioli and Elaine Gagnol. Uh, and it is, it's actually a really cool story. It is a story of this cat that's in Paris. No, uh, so this cat is, uh, by day, this cat is uh, belongs to a little girl. And at night, she always escapes and goes off and is uh, helps a, a burglar, a thief, uh, work his way around Paris and, and steal things. And um, the little girl you find out has had some tragedy in her life. Um, and her mother is a police officer, uh, like, the, like the, the head of the police force. And they're fight, trying to find this bad guy. And um, you, there's a bunch of circumstances where uh, the bad guys end up kidnapping the girl. And with the help of the thief, which was recruited by the cat, they try to get the, get the girl back. Um, this is a very uh, creative movie. It's a great watch. Um, I watched it with my kids, uh, and all they could talk about for the next couple of days is how they wanted to watch the cat movie again. And so we've watched it several times since. Uh, it's it's really cool animation, um, and it, it's it, it's um, it's hand drawn. I'm pretty sure it's hand drawn. It definitely looks it, and it's very like flat, but also has the depth of the city and. Paris definitely plays a, a, a very definite role in the final, like the final act, uh, the climax of the movie takes place at Notre Dame. Uh, it is, uh, it, it's really, it's a great movie. I watched it dubbed into English. Cause that's because I watched it with my kids. So we kind of had to dub it into English, uh, but that really didn't take anything away from it either. It's got some cool twists and turns and it's only an hour and 10 minutes. So it's a really, really quick watch too which was uh, good for watching with my kids. It's a solid three star borderline three and a half star movie. I really enjoyed this one. Um, it, it creative movie, like a fun animated crime thriller that kids can get into. So, uh, and it all revolves around a cat and the cat's pretty awesome. I got to say, and, and the, the, the thugs of the, uh, of the main uh, bad guy are, are like your stereotypical, just stupid thugs, which is a lot of fun too. But, uh, yeah, Cat in Paris, three stars. Yeah, I remember liking that one too. And I guess it's okay to dub something that where the main characters are like not human. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Well, the cat never talks though. The cat never says anything. So it's all. It, but it works. It works. I think animated is like the one time dubbing works because the the mouth isn't going to perfectly fit what they're saying anyways. Yeah, I've seen quite a few like anime uh, stuff uh, dubbed, and it, it, it's it's the same experience. Yeah, have you seen that one, Zach? I have not, nor have I heard of it. But it sounds very interesting, and it sounds like if Disney ever tried to make a movie called A Cat in Paris, it would be it would crash and burn. 
compared well, to what they, you described. They, they, they made a movie about a rat in Paris, but it wasn't Ah, that's that. true. I ah. think what I was thinking of. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> Got him. All right. Uh, okay, Todd, take us into the cager. Okay, my cager review, the 32nd edition, comes from 2008, directed by the Pang brothers, Danny and Oxide Chun Pang, and that is Bangkok Dangerous. Ah! Yeah. The remake of their 2000 movie, which I haven't even seen. Potentially uh, the best Nicolas Cage title. Yeah. I mean, it's a remake. I wanted to watch the original, but I didn't get to it. But yeah, it, it is an awesome title. And it is also the fourth time I counted uh, that I've seen him play a character that is simply named Joe. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Joe is an assassin, and he is a really highly skilled assassin. And he's on his, what he says is going to be his last job in Bangkok. But he violates one of his own rules, which is he um, he makes a connection with one of the people there, which is a helper that he finds that he would normally just off after the job is over. And he also kind of falls for this, like, deaf mute girl. And uh, what complicates things is that, that his targets kind of, figure out what's going on because he leaves like his uh uh he, he leaves people that know something and uh he's he becomes the hunted because he's really sloppy and uh apparently the original has the assassin character as the deaf mute and i really tried to picture what that would look like with nicholas cage <laughs> and it was really entertaining to think about but that and it would have been fascinating and absolutely unmarketable <laughs> at the same time so I, I get why they had to change it um uh, the movie is really obsessed with like style and aura. It, it kind of feels like a Wong Kar Wai movie, or someone who like made a lot of like video or music video movies uh, or music videos before they went into movies. And uh, I, I'm not familiar with the Pang Brothers' other work, but I'd be interested to check it out. Uh, Joe is like a conflicted, cold-blooded killer. He has a lot of narration where he's like explaining his hesitancies and why he does things and why he and how, how he's like numb to the things that he does. There's a little bit of like the house that Jack built in there. But the problem is, is that the movie is like really slow building up to the actual action. And uh, it's kind of boring. The The other characters aren't really all that interesting. And I, I almost wish that they would have been speaking in Thai instead of like struggling their way through English, because I, I bet the original was like, was like awesome and because and a lot fresher because uh the characters would have been a lot more uh adapted to their environment but the, this movie it, it kind of becomes kind of conventional and it, it makes like the bangkok underworld kind of like this boring like criminal underworld like tokyo kind of feeling thing i mean it, bangkok is such a vibrant like party city and it takes like all of that out of it it, it becomes like this sort of lame rip off between like the professional and lay samurai which is it which isn't as interesting as just like watching nicholas cage like kill some assholes because i mean there's a lot of that in there too and it, it ends on like a, a like a downer note which is odd because that, that makes it like completely uh not i mean there's no chance that there would ever be a sequel but if it was made like five years later i guarantee it would have like spawned like several really bad sequels and like a whole like, and spin-offs and stuff like that i can't say i like the movie and i can't say i hated it but it does like a lot of things that try to push you away, which it, it's a really bizarre movie to watch, uh, which I mean, I guess I just have to give it two stars and put it number 75 on the cager between Kiss of Death and Trapped in Paradise. And those kind of together describe this movie. <laughs> awesome. Wow. Awesome. I mean, I, I've always wanted to see that one simply for the title and the hair. Like those two together, 
Oh yeah, it, it is totally like peak bad Nicolas Cage era hair. <laughs> like uh, it, it's like Memphis Reigns with bad hair. That that is essentially what Joe, the fourth Joe, that <laughs> is like. Does does Joe talk tie? Like Jack talks tie? Oh, he talks a little tie, but uh, Jack talk tie very well. Yeah, Jack so, talk tie. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, Dina Janka, Jack can't tie. Yes, I like it. So we've got the French animated movie, the German movie from the seventies, and Bangkok Dangerous. We are we are really expanding out, getting uh, quite international and eclectic in our taste. Well, well, now now let's get into our our featured review where we're going to talk about cowboys in Philadelphia. <laughs> just just bring it all full circle here. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zach movie ever made. You got to see it. Movie reviews. So yeah, so our uh, our our featured review. I mean, we had a choice. We could have talked about um, about the movie everybody's talking about this weekend, and that is Kong versus Godzilla, or is it Godzilla versus Kong? I honestly don't remember which way the title goes, but it doesn't really matter. I think it's HBO um, Max versus the world, but okay. Pretty much. Pretty much. Uh, but we opted for uh, the Netflix release this week, uh, which is a smaller time movie, but looked a little more uh, a little more interesting. And that is Concrete Cowboy. There's a horse in your house. Oh, this you right here. I ain't staying here. Right. So once you step out, that door stays locked till morning. All cowboys were black. Even the Lone Ranger was black. <laughs> Who's the Lone Ranger? Really? Are <laughs> you teaching this boy anything? The history here is deep. You're like the Wild West out here. I woke up to the morning sky first. Baby blue, just like we rehearsed. I know you. You hops, boy. When I get up off this ground, I should oh, Your daddy got rules that you're not abiding by. Yo, what are you doing? You want to ride the street life? You can't be in my house. You want to wise up? You're welcome back. Welcome back to what? I ain't got no home here. That's your choice. Then the rock I'll be shaded by. be alone out here, man. I'm going to get my money, and I'm going to get up out of here. You with me or not, bro? But then she's still made you a man overnight. I'm your father. You ain't my father! I mean, you a father to everyone else out here. Oh, you hate me, man. I was just like him now. I don't know who they expect us to go up and be if we watching over our shoulder all our lives. I have something for you. Oh, look. Like a real cowboy. <laughs> Peepees believe that breaking a horse meant crushing the will of the animal. <laughs> Only way you can realize its true spirit is through love. <laughs> you don't have to get out to grow up. <laughs> The city decide they don't need horses no more. Y'all trying to tear this place down? Come on, man. How you gonna do that to us? This is where we live. My sisters and my brothers. They can't take who we are as a people. So what we gonna do then? We gonna do what we always do. We gonna rock.
So uh, I'm going to start uh, talking about this one. Concrete Cowboy is uh, written and directed by Ricky Staub, who is uh, make, doing his writing and directing debut in this. And uh, it stars Adris Elba and Caleb McLaughlin, who is uh, one of the Stranger Things kids. And uh, Caleb McLaughlin plays Cole, uh, a kid who is constantly getting in trouble, uh, living in Detroit with his with his mom. And to try and straighten him out, his mom decides that they are going to uh, he is going to go and stay with his dad in Philadelphia for the summer. And his dad is Adris Elba, who plays Hart. And we soon find out that uh, his dad is a part of an urban cowboy group in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, this cowboy group is kind of used to help. Um, help get uh, kids off the streets and help help kind of get kids motivated into making something out of their lives. And we find out at the end of the movie that some of the characters were played by actual members of this uh, Philadelphia cowboy group, which was really cool to see because it actually is a real true thing. Um, we, uh, we get some side characters in there, like a, like an old, um, an old childhood friend, uh, smush played by Gerald Jerome from moonlight. Uh, you also have Method Man playing um, a former member of the cowboy group that is now a police officer that is always kind of looking out for the group as they go along. Um, this this movie is it's fairly predictable in where it's going. It's pretty formulaic. However, at the same time, it tells the story very well. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, watching um, Cole and seeing his his kind of arc and and where he goes and what what's happening with him. Adris Elba shows that he can really be anything and he can act his way out of a paper bag because he's just awesome um and uh he totally just dives into this role and you totally can see him just being this guy um i'm giving it three stars um and uh the only reason i'm not going higher is because it it is a little predictable um and it's kind of by the books but if you're looking for like a like a self-discovery coming of age story and this is a great one to, to look for and uh, and to look out for. Easy to find on Netflix. So three stars from me. That's what I'm going for. Concrete Cowboy. Let's go to Zach next. Okay, so um, this movie is very... I, I thought of three movies watching this movie. Maybe four. I feel like this movie is a combination of The Rider... Although it's actually more the Mustang, which is the ripoff the, of the rider, so this is a ripoff of a ripoff. That the whole like horse therapy thing, right? You got you got some. You definitely have some boys in the hood in there, right? You got you got the dynamic between mm -hmm. this kind of distant father who's very much against a life of crime in this urban area, and the son who's a little disconnected, and then you got a Bronx tale. Oh, who's he going to side with? Which male role model is he going to go with? Is he going to go with the father? Is he going to go down the straight path? Or is he going to go with this cousin, the this, this smush character, Gerald Jerome, and lead this life of crime? Um, this movie, uh, predict you, you understated how predictable this movie is, Terry. Every single moment of this movie felt like it was scripted. It was, uh, the, 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 there was absolutely nothing unique or surprising about it, which is particularly disappointing because, you know, we don't have a lot of cinematic history with black cowboys, okay? When you think bla a black actor on a horse, you think Cleavon Little, right? And that's pretty limited. 
So I was really looking forward to the idea of more black representation in the kind of mythic Western genre on horses. Um, and you know, this movie does have a mostly black cast and uh, I, Idris Elba is the best thing about this movie. He is amazing in it, okay? Uh, well, okay, I don't know if I'd say amazing, but he has one monologue in this movie that is really, really, really good. And where it's the best moment in the movie. It's where he talks about uh, where uh, his son's name derives. Um, but even if you watch that scene, there's like not a really great payoff to it because he basically says at the end of that scene, this is how you got your name. And the person you're named for also didn't really have a relationship with his dad. And then the scene ends. Like, what? What is that supposed to be saying? Like, okay, they're just always going to be distant. Um, I really thought that the filmmaking aspects of this movie were super gimmicky. I've been seeing this in a lot of Netflix movies, but you know, the slow-mos, let's get rid of those, okay? There's uh, like 10 times in this movie that with, with the, the slow-mos for dramatic effect. I'm really tired of the chases in 60 FPS. I'm also tired of the scene when a climactic shootout happens and then the director opts to do those quick dip to black transitions, like interrupting the footage. Come on, I, I've seen it a million, a million times. Um, this movie has a really unique, specific story that has to be grounded in reality because otherwise it wouldn't seem believable that horses are just kind of free to roam in this area of North Philadelphia. I had a hard time believing, I had a hard time sympathizing with the idea that, that these horses are really getting cared for. Like you got the one horse who's living in the house who's pretty upset. And there's one time when he even runs away. There's another horse who we're told is dead and decaying outside. The horses don't look that great. All I'm saying, so that ma that makes me sympathize a little less with the characters, especially with the whole obligatory subplot of the police are coming in and they're going to take the horses away. You got this heist scene at the end, which is just ridiculous, totally predictable. You have the smush character, the cousin, talk about his dreams. I think we know what's going to happen when he talks about uh, his his dreams, right? I feel like that's uh, that that's that's screenwriting 101. The best part of this movie, besides the Idris Elba speech, is the end credits. I can't think of a, of a movie where the end credits are actually better than the movie, but um, I love the idea that this was a real story, and kind of like the Mustang, the Matthias Showarts movie, which this movie is very similar to, um, I don't know why they had to infuse the whole, uh, that there didn't, there didn't need to be this uh, like hyperkinetic sensationalized story about gang violence, right? Uh, all we needed was this documentary look at this really unique, uh, you know, almost family vibe of these people in this neighborhood. Wh why not make a documentary? You already have the non-professional actors there. It kind of makes me think what Chloe Zhao would have done with this movie, someone who's also made movies about horses and non-professional actors. So um, this movie's a pretty big disappointment. I like Caleb McLaughlin on, on Stranger Things. I, I think he's talented. This isn't really the right, it, it, he's not given a whole lot to deal with. I'm giving it a generous two stars, mostly because it's based on a true story. And I feel like hopefully maybe they can have a documentary on the, on the criteria and extra features of this movie uh, about the real people and what they really do. All right, so three stars from me, two stars from Zach. Todd, are you in the middle? Uh, I'm almost exactly with Zach. He actually hit on like so many of the exact same points that <laughs> yes. I was going to say. Uh, but I mean, okay, uh, overall, like okay, I, I like that the It and the Stranger Things guys are like actually becoming big deals to get their own projects. But Caleb McLaughlin looks so much like a young Donald Glover. I kind of thought it was at one point. Like there was oh, this movie made, like 20 years ago. Um, but uh, I don't know the movie has like sort of a quiet tone and you're supposed to feel like you're an outsider like you like you like you are cold getting drawn into this world uh but i don't think it really 
gets there or really gets anywhere is and I, I i so was on the same page with the mustang which i mean using horses as rehabilitation and all that i, I thought that movie's way better at doing that that was actually one of my favorite movies of that year this 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 one does not compare to that but it's a really similar story but once things calm down it gets a little bit better the first like half hour i think are kind of a slog it's really it is really predictable like getting to know the rules the tough love warming up to the place, you know, feeling like nobody cares about you, blah, blah, blah. And um, I, I like that it's a section of society that you don't really see represented ever in movies, but that's probably because there isn't an interesting movie to make about it. I really was right with Zach. I, I, I actually wrote down, I thought that, that it should have been a 20 minute documentary short uh, because I think there is an interesting story to tell, just not in movie form. And I don't care about Cole. I, I mean, it, it's a run-of-the-mill co uh, coming-of-age story. Everything's a metaphor. Everything's over-dramatized. Yeah. Oh, this juvenile delinquent now has to shovel some shit. I feel so bad. No, I really don't care. Like, I mean, it's just like, it, it's just like this. And then it becomes this, like, over-the-top kid in, in crime movie. I don't know. I It's uh, it's over-directed and melodramatic in the wrong spots. And I wish, I, and like, I, I really thought, I, I really thought of No Man Land, too, because I wanted to just, like, hang out with the other characters and hear, like, their stories and hear like how they passed the time because honestly that's all i wanted to do when watching this movie was just like make the time pass because it was kind of boring I, and i really give it two stars as well yeah i will say i did want to spend more time with the guy in the wheelchair that looked like lucky stanfield Paris. um yeah that because i it took i i had to make sure that that wasn't lucky stanfield for uh, after a little it, while it was totally a, the role that he would have played i i, <laughs> I, I thought that too <laughs> He even had the same like goatee. <laughs> I know he looked just like him. Yeah, I I don't know. I I guess I just got in, engaged by the story a little more than you guys did. But I I see a lot of the stuff you guys are saying, and like like I said, that was one of the things I had against it. Is it was it was predictable. It was very formulaic. But I I thought the story was cool. And honestly, I, Zach said the best part was the closing credits. I think that added to it a lot too. And at, just to know that this is a true a. a a real setting. It's one of those where if it's not real, you would never believe it that there's this this group in the projects of Philadelphia that keeps horses. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but, honestly, um, honestly, that's the best thing this movie's got going for it because so pa Paris is an interesting character, right? Like listening to his monologue about his past, I've heard that same monologue about a thousand times in movies, right? Um, and I love how everybody just pauses. That I think the Issa character pauses what she's doing. Everybody pauses. Oh, we got to pay attention to his monologue here. This is his best supporting actor Oscar moment. But watching the end credits makes me think, well, maybe that actually happens. So I can't totally discount that. And I can't, I can't fault the movie for being, like you said, Terry, illogical because this thing actually exists. I mean, have there been moments when there's the horse running free on a baseball field and they have to lock arms like that? Like maybe that has actually happened. But what has not happened is a scene where a character gets a brand new pair of shoes and the director does a close up of it. And we know within the next five minutes, those shoes are going to have horse shit all over them. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's little stuff like that that makes me feel like, a director like Chloe Zhao, but you know, a, a, not a first-time director like this guy. Uh, someone who has more patience and more nuance with the story um, to you know bring bring it, uh, make it more relatable instead of this stupid Hollywood gimmick stuff. But you know what? Maybe it also wasn't the director. Maybe Netflix insisted on making it this way. We don't we don't know the full story behind it, but we do know that there is an interesting story here to tell. This just, as Todd said, wasn't the right medium to tell it.
Yeah, th- this guy, uh, Ricky Staub, uh, has one of the more impressively short IMDb pages from someone who helmed a film starring a big Hollywood star like Idris Elba. Uh, his only other directing credit is a short that he made three years ago that he also wrote called The Cage. Um, and then he was a production assistant for four things. And he wrote two other shorts. That's that's literally his entire IMDb page. Oh, I guess he acted in two shorts and then a movie as a bartender a decade ago. I mean, the, the, this is this guy literally came out of nowhere and now has a feature film with Idris Elba. So, I mean, you got to give him some credit for for coming up with this out of nowhere and uh, and first time writer, first time director. But uh, yeah, Shows. it could it could have been better, but I still think it's engaging enough for me to give it three stars. And I also think uh, if anybody is thinking about a black man on a horse, they, I mean, I think everybody thinks about Django Unchained. <laughs> I don't think oh, that's the a good first thing is, yeah. is Blazing Saddles. No. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. I was also going to say, I was watching this movie also and thinking about Nobody, the movie we disagreed on last week. Idris Elba should have been the Bob Odenkirk role in that movie. I would have given that movie a thumbs up. I was waiting oh, in this movie... <laughs> well, I would have been. I would have liked it more. I wa- Idris Elba has a great look in this movie. He should always wear a cowboy hat. I wanted him to beat people up. I wanted him to get on a Philadelphia city bus and just beat the shit out of everybody. And be James Bond, which yeah, well, you know. okay, sure. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's the underlying message, I guess. But I want him to beat people up in this movie. I was waiting for the confrontation with Smush. It didn't happen. This movie is produced by Lee Daniels, and that's probably why it got made. Um, yeah, so, that makes yeah. sense. But I could see Lee Daniels wanting to wanting to get you know publicize this this section of society too. Anyways, all right. Well, that is that is Concrete Cowboy. I forgot to show this at the beginning, so there it is. Concrete Cowboy. I'm giving it three stars. Ton Zach are giving it two stars. This should be a, this should be a Twitter question. When you think black man on a horse, do you think Cleavon Little or Jamie Foxx or someone else? Maybe Morgan Freeman and Unforgiven. Does this he ever get on a horse a, in that? I, I honestly do not know. I don't think he does. <laughs> uh, may, may, all right, maybe I'll throw that out there. We'll, we'll throw that out there. I, admi- I, I admire the movie for wanting to, you know, bridge out from just those, you know, those images. Yeah. All right. Well, that is Concrete Cowboy. Uh, available on Netflix. It was its new release. Uh, if you hadn't heard, Netflix is releasing a brand new Netflix original every week this year for the entire 2021 year. So you'll like two or three every week. Yeah, well, it's it's usually it's like one major like English movie, and then they've got like three foreign films that come out every week too. So as as well as all of their all their TV shows and everything, they just have a ton of content. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's move on. It is now time to get into. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. So, last time, uh, Zach won our, our game of guessing Adam's list. So, Zach got to pick a category. So, tell us what we're doing. 
All right. Well, we've had this year at this year's Oscars, we have um, a few performances that are getting some uh, nominations by older actors. So we've been on this podcast. We've talked about how great Anthony Hopkins was in The Father. We mentioned Yoo Jun Yoon in Minari. And uh, at least Terry and I liked Glenn Close in Hillbilly Elegy. So I thought, um, why not talk about uh, some great performances by older actors? So this week's power ranking is best performances by actors. Um, age 70 or older. And then to make things more interesting, we are going to do one per decade. Yeah, that, that one per decade part made this so much harder because you realize that you go back 20, 30 years, barely anybody over 70 was in a movie. I, I, <laughs> I realize that, or at least in movies I've seen. So that made this list insanely hard. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Hollywood is notorious for casting uh, younger people. You, even, uh, yeah, I looked up a lot of roles that I thought were, you know, older people, and they were played by people under the age of 70. How about none other than, um, you know, the mother of Jim Lovell, Blanche Lovell, played by Ron Howard's mother, Jean Howard. She was only like 65. She looks 165 in she that does. movie. That movie should have won for makeup just for that scene alone. But we are going. <laughs> yeah, but like Catherine Scorsese is over seventy, and like in Goodfellas, I mean, like that. I yeah. mean, I don't know. It's it's. I mean, you can pick out some that are that are bad like that. But I mean, most of the time they have they have old old people. There there were some there were some that I yeah I was with Zach that I was like that that's got to be over seventy. Nope. So I found a that whole bunch so like fun. 67, 68 year old performances that I loved. But um, originally, yeah. I was going to say eighty or over, but that would have been that would, <laughs> that would have made this list a lot easier. Yeah, because there's only like five rules ever played by eighty year olds. But okay, yeah. No. Well, I mean, well, you but, can't just take like the last like ten Christopher Plummer movies or something. Yeah, and Max von Sydow, sure, <laughs> and Clint Eastwood. Yeah, um, but it honestly, it was it was the uh, it was the one per decade that made this tough. Okay, well, let's get into this. With our with our number five, Todd, you're going first. So, uh, what is your number five? Uh yeah. Okay, so this list was hard because I had a bunch from like the last like 15 years or so. So uh, I had to branch out a little bit. My number five is Ossie Davis in Do the Right Thing. He was 72 in that movie uh, because uh, Demare was, is one of my favorite characters in that movie, and him, you know, like him going and like bitching out the Koreans for not having the right kind of beer, and uh, him his back and forth with Ruby D. And I, I, it's just pure gold, and his part's pretty small, but it it, it highlights a charisma that uh, actors that age don't necessarily always get the show on screen, and it's a it's such a big dynamic cast, and he is honestly one of my like two or three favorite characters in that movie. He makes it different, so. Ossie Davis would do the right thing, representing the 1980s. That's my number five. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about uh, that role, but that's awesome. That means, though, that um, he was really old for a long time. I didn't even. I would have. I wouldn't have thought he was even 70 in that movie. Really? I, I that was one of the first things I thought of. I was like, I, him and Ruby D. I know. I know they're old. And then I looked up. I was like, Yep, there you go. <laughs> I mean, Ruby D was one of those Oscar nominees who was like 85 years old when she got nominated. Yeah. So that that must mean she was quite a bit younger than Ozzie Davis. But well, no, I mean, Ozzie Davis was 72. So if she was like 85, 85 in 19 or 2007, 20 years later, 
Well, yeah, okay. Should have been in her mid, mid to late 60s. Yeah. I don't know. Similar range. Yeah. All right. I will go next. Uh, my number five is my uh, my submission from the 70s. Uh, and honestly, it's like the only decent one that I could find from the 70s. And I kind of had to cheat a little bit to make it happen. <laughs> so we are going with, uh, he was 72 in 1979. We're going with Burgess Meredith as Mick from Rocky 2. Because nice. he was 69 in Rocky. But he was 72 when Rocky 2 was made. But it's the same character, and he's amazing in in the first three Rocky movies. Um, he the the old grizzled um, coach of of Rocky Balboa going through the ropes. I mean, what's not to what's not to like about about Mick? Uh, he he's he's the best. So uh, I and Burgess Meredith is amazing, and uh, he he's great in that role. And so I had to go with that one. So Burgess Meredith, but in Rocky two, because in Rocky two, he was over 70. He Rocky does have a lot of great scenes in Rocky two, but I mean, so this means that you didn't choose something from the 2020s. You didn't choose something from last year. I did not choose something from last year. No. Okay. I thought there were some options, but okay. Oh, I guess I could have, but no, I did not. Okay. You know, Burgess Meredith was a big stick man. <laughs> yes, we know. We, yeah, I mean, he he originated. He was one of the founders. He was like the Charles Atlas of the older Stickman generation, the, the Mad Men of Stickmen that era. All right, Zach, number five. Uh, I did choose something from 2020 as my number five. It was actually one of the rare uh, old person performances that did not get Oscar attention. Although I brought it up on the podcast maybe once or twice, and that is Brian Dennehy in Driveways. Brian Dennehy. Mm -hmm. The late Brian Dennehy. Also, I'm calling this a 2020 movie because that's when it was released. Uh, Brian Dennehy uh, passed away not too long ago. Uh, great kind of character actor, sort of like a tough guy. I feel like I think he didn't he play uh, David Spade's father on Just Shoot Me. I feel like he he, he was born to play a fireman. Um, but uh, in Driveways, it's sort of a different role. He he is sort of like an old tough guy in the movie, but really it's it's actually a really sweet and tender performance um, that uh, he he. Also, by the way, with my list, I tried to go against going with everybody's grandparent or parent. Okay, that just gets like a little bit routine and, and ordinary. So Brian Dennehy is is the kindly old neighbor to uh, this uh, mother and son, uh, played by Hong Chow and Lucas J. And they in the movie they are um, cleaning out the 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 mom's sister's the the late mom's sister's house or the mom's late sister's house. And the, over the course of the movie, these two characters develop a friendship with this elderly neighbor who he's not, it's not like he's going through dementia necessarily. He's not like Anthony Hopkins and the father, but he is sort of declining. And he's, you know, he has, a. there's a beautiful scene at the end of the movie where he talks sort of about uh, the trajectory of his life, some of the regrets he has, and maybe the uncertainty that he feels in the future. It's a subtle performance that got overlooked by the Oscars, unfortunately, but it's really a, a, a treasure of a movie. It was my number 13 movie of last year. Just missed my top 10, but it's a really sweet movie, quiet movie, um, and Brian Dennehy is, is superb in it. Check it out if you get a chance. Driveways. Not sideways. Driveways. Okay. It is, yeah, it is a real it's a good movie. It's a really good performance. And you are wrong for having that on your list because my number four comes from the 2020s and it's a movie that is higher on your list, and it's a performance that's higher on your list. And that is Paul Racy in Sound of Metal, who was 71. Uh, mm. 
And uh, I, I mean, I thought this was going to be a thrice approved one. Apparently, I'm the only one that has it has it on their list. Uh, I had no I idea he was actually too. 70 plus until he got nominated. Uh, but he's so subtle, and it just it shows he he has this like acting talent and emotion that I I, I still can't figure out someone to recast. I mean, I know you guys said Ben Mendelsohn, but I, I still think Paul Racy's perfect because he actually is the hearing son of deaf parents which makes him have this like perspective that brings more to that role and more relatability that makes the movie what it is. And it's, I mean, you can see everything he's thinking just by the, the look on his face. He, it's a perfect performance. And if there's any justice in the world, he will actually win best supporting actor at the Oscars. It's yeah. I mean, I, I can't believe you guys didn't have that on that. I mean, that's really upsetting. I didn't know he was 72. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that was not obvious to me. I know, but that was like a thing. Like, like when he got nominated, it's like, wow, he's like, I mean, I didn't hear that. Well, obviously, yeah. I mean, I don't want to take off Ryan Dennehy because I think he's really good. But you know, I don't, I didn't think of him as seventy-two. He's like, he has a lot of life and a lot of zest. He moves oh, I know. around. It's a, movie. It's an like, amazing performance. Yeah, amazing, well, it's a great, great over seventy performance as well. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I didn't even consider last year at all. I I don't know why, but I was just like, I'm not gonna. Last year just shouldn't count. Let's just get rid of it. It never happened. <laughs> and and uncut gems uh, <laughs> and sideways or in. But yeah, <laughs> if I if I had realized that Paul Racy would definitely be on my list, um, and possibly like, yeah, potentially like number one. Okay. Yeah. Well, number four on my list is my submission from the '90s, <clears throat> and I have a feeling everyone's gonna like this uh this call here. Uh, we're going with a movie from 1992. Uh, this actor was 73 years old uh, when he played Joe Cabot in Reservoir Dogs. It is Lawrence Tierney. Uh, it, it is it is a great great performance uh, by the leader of uh, of the gang that's uh, pulling off this heist, who names all of all of the guys and tells Mister Pink to tip. Um, normally, I don't tip, but for you, I'll tip. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a great performance, and even possibly better than the performance is the legend of the off off the screen, uh, behind the scenes uh, stories of what went on between Lawrence Tierney and Quentin Tarantino. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go look up Reservoir Dogs, Lawrence Tierney, Quentin Tarantino, and you'll find some great stuff. I think there's some behind the scenes stuff on like some of the DVDs and and such, but. Uh, he he's like the perfect grizzled old uh old guy to be running this group and uh yeah it's just a ridiculous performance and it's awesome and a great movie so Lawrence Tierney Reservoir Dogs is my number four. I mean the man walked through a wall. <laughs> walked through a wall <laughs> at seventy three. <laughs> yeah, apparently he also got into some real bad shenanigans on the set of Seinfeld because he played Julia Louis Dreyfus's father on that show too. They wanted him to come back as a recurring role, but he kind of did the same thing on that set that he did on uh, Reservoir Dogs, and sadly, it never happened. Apparently, at one point, he held a knife up to Jerry Seinfeld. Gosh. Ay, ay, ay. All right. Zach, number four. All right, my number four, I'm going to the 2010s. You know it. You love it. I'm going Shirley MacLaine and Bernie. 
And you know what? I've talked uh, ad nauseum about Bernie. I didn't want to bring it up. I feel like maybe we need to make a caveat for my list where I'm not allowed to bring Bernie up along with Uncut Gems and Fargo, but I couldn't resist, okay? Shirley MacLaine is awesome in this movie. This is the role that she was born to play. And she's not anybody's mother or grandmother. She's not this sweet, kindly old lady. She is like a mean old lady. Like we could do a power rankings of the best mean old ladies ever in movies. She would be like number one or maybe one A with Danny DeVito's mom and throw mama from the train or uh, Billy Chris I can't remember who it was but she's like so mean in that movie and she like you know she gets into Jack Black's head and she makes you really kind of want to strangle her and kill her and it's a really high war performance because that's kind of the way Shirley MacLaine is in real life if you've ever seen an interview with her and you know her best performance is still terms of endearment but the lady knows how to act she can bring it. She is aware of the kind of persona she has. And um, it's a tricky role to play because, again, you don't want to you want to feel bad for an old lady. You want to kill the old lady. And I can't think of many other uh, women that could really bring that across in as powerful a way as Shirley MacLaine in any movie, but in particular, Bernie. I'm sorry. I think well, I need she to... was the number one douchebag of the decade, if you remember. Exactly. I mean, that it really takes some skill to be, I believe she was actually over 80 when that movie, I think she was 80 years old when she made it. So uh, it, it, it's, it's an impressive feat. I can't think of very many 70 plus women who were villains in movies, period. But she pulled it off like the champ. Truly the Eric Roberts of elderly women. Well, Helen Mirren just got cast as like a Marvel villain, didn't she? Or something. She got cast as a villain in something. Maybe it was a DC movie. I don't know. That's interesting. I have to look what I, up that what that it was. Okay. All right. <laughs> look it up after you give us your number three. My number three comes from the 2010s. Uh, she was 72 years old. I reviewed it at the pod on the podcast at one point. It is Blythe Danner in "I'll See You in My Dreams," mm. which is a movie that I really loved. And she she has. I mean, she, it's a character. She's so full of life and she somehow is like convincing as it, uh, being in this love triangle with Martin Starr and Sam Elliott. And I, I would have never guessed she was over 70 because she, she still has it. Like, she, like for me, like, uh, she's still Dina in, in, uh, meet the parents, but she still has that same magnetism, uh, in 2015 or whatever this was released that, that she did then. And she was also my favorite part of Prince of Ties, but th this is like one of my favorite performances of the last decade in one of the most underrated movies of the last decade. And Blythe Danner has always had that, that career that's gone without any recognition for whatever reason. And uh, yeah, that, that's what I'm going with for my number three. It was a tough choice out of all the 2010s movies, but that's what I landed on. Yeah, that's a good one. She's like sexy in that movie. Like she's radiant and I think she kind of looks great for 70 whatever. And uh she carries every scene in that movie. I can't think of any scene where she's not in it. Um, and she's awesome. It is a really good movie. It's kind of a quirky movie that has some comic and dramatic elements, but it's never unbelievable because she's believable in that role. It's, it's yeah. kind of perfect for her. Yeah, and I would have never guessed she was over 70. I mean, she, she's the exact same she was in 2000. I mean, it, it, it's kind of incredible. I mean, there's a scene where she gets high with a bunch of her old lady friends. And it kind of is oh, yeah, believable. June Squibb, and... June Squibb, Rhea Perlman. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, it's kind of cool. And uh, I, I remember she has like a singing career in that movie. Like, it's a really interesting movie. I don't remember liking it as much as you did. But now that I, I remember a lot of it, so maybe I did like it. I don't know. It certainly made an impact on me. Maybe this Sorry, is a movie I need it. to watch. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen it. 
Oh, yeah. you'd love it's a, it's a, it's <clears throat> it's a Terry movie for sure. I mean, yeah, I, I think Terry probably liked it more than I did. Even I think it was like close to my top ten of that year, honestly. Wow. All right. All right. So moving on to my number three. Uh, my number three is my submission from the two thousands. Uh, this movie came out in two thousand two, and it uh one of the uh performance is by a man who was seventy two years old. And it was one of his final performances because he died that same year. Um, it is one of my favorite like guilty pleasure movies that I never get to bring up that much. It is Richard Harris as Abe Faria in <laughs> The Count of Monte Cristo. Well, that was not the one I was th- thought you were going with. <laughs> no, Count of Monte Cristo. I love this movie. And he is such a quirky old man uh, who, um, who meets Edmund Dantes in prison by coming up through the floor of his prison cell, thinking he was digging a tunnel to, to the outside of the, of the prison wall. And instead found himself in a different cell. And he said, okay, well, I guess I just have to dig the other way. And his, uh, in his dying breath, as he dies in prison reveals the treasure that allows Edmund Dantes to become the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, he, he gives like the greatest performance of the movie and possibly one of his best performances uh, he steals the movie in in just the short time he's there as he uh, is just this quirky priest who knows everything and teaches Edmund everything that he knows. Uh, I love it. I, I love this movie. And, and I mean, everyone else will probably say the best 2002 performance of Richard Harris was Harry Potter. Um, but uh, I'm going, I got to go The Count of Monte Cristo. I love that movie. And yeah especially for someone in one of their final performances. Uh, yeah. Got to go with it. I thought you were going with like, when you said 2002, I thought when one of his final performances, I thought you were going with Paul Newman in road to perdition or something, but he, yeah. I, maybe he wasn't quite 70. I don't know. Oh, he was, I, I looked him up. Okay. No, Richard well, Harris and count of Monte Cristo. That's what I'm going with. I love he, that movie. I've never seen it. And I feel like you're going to assign it to me now that I mentioned that. It, so uh, might as well right. just get on it. Here, here's here's what here's what I have to say about that movie. It is nothing like the book. I love the book. It is nothing like the book, but it is a great movie. So if I don't you, remember it, anything about it. it. I mean, I think I might have watched it once. I mean, it, it, it's one of your it's one of your movies, Terry. You, you bring this movie up like every five episodes. I, I mean, I, yeah, it comes up it, every now and then. It's like Bernie. Yeah, exactly. We Bernie may have to deep dive it next year when it's celebrating its twentieth anniversary. There we go. Bernie's going to have a lot. Of, we we might have to do a deep dive every week on two thousand two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach. Number three. All right, my number three film comes from uh, the twenty no two thousands, and uh, it is a film that I actually just watched this summer. I, I think Todd's a fan of this movie. The movie is called Goodbye Solo by Raman Barani, who's a director we really like. And the performer's name is Red West. And I believe he had a interesting like um, background. He, I don't think he was a trained actor. I think he was like, uh, I'm looking on his IMDb profile. He was a member of Elvis's, Elvis Presley's inner circle known as the Memphis Mafia. I feel like there's a movie that should be made right there. But anyway, in Goodbye Solo, he plays a character named William. And Goodbye Solo is about this elderly man, played by Red West, who is at the end of his life, and he is in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he calls up a cab driver named Solo, who's played by Suleiman Sai Savane. 
And uh, he basically gradually reveals to this taxi driver, who's this very friendly, kind, outgoing, um, I believe he's Ethiopian, I want to say. Uh, he's an African immigrant. Um, uh, but uh, he gradually reveals to him that he plans to kill himself by jumping off this big mountain in uh, North Carolina. And the movie is kind of like, it's basically just, uh, you know, two opposites attracting. Like you have this solo character who is so outgoing, so friendly, so funny, so spontaneous, uh, spo uh, spontaneous and full of life. And then you have this William character who's really dour and, and uh, de you know, depressed, but also just kind of angry and bitter at the world. And it feels like this movie is going to turn into a Disney type uplifting inspirational story about how Solo is going to show William how great life is and he's going to make William rethink his suicidal plans but uh, the movie is a lot more intelligent than that. It goes in directions that you don't expect and it really is though at the core about this very tender relationship between these two men. Um, watching Goodbye Solo, you know, uh, Red West is not the most apparent actor in it because there's a lot of, uh, he doesn't speak a lot. He's very taciturn, very elderly and, you know, senile. Um, but in a lot of his actions, a lot of his acting is just kind of reacting to uh, uh, Suleiman Sai Savine or S Savane. And uh, they just have a great dynamic. I would watch, I would watch more movies with those two characters. Um, they're, they just, they, they, they bond in ways that are unexpected, but seem really genuine and authentic and true. And, uh, you know, when I thought old person performance that didn't get a lot of notoriety, Red <laughs> West absolutely was one of the first uh, actors I thought of. So I don't know what the guy did in his life. It seems maybe perhaps appropriate that he wasn't a trained actor because again, there's just so much genuine about his performance in that movie, but um, he's really awesome in it. Great movie, worth checking out. Cool. Yeah, I do, I do like the movie a lot too. And yeah, recent Oscar nominee, Ramin Barani, which is cool. He deserves it. Great director, yep. Uh, All right. Well, and I do want to add when I when I when I hear the title "Goodbye Solo," I always think of the episode of The Office that is "Goodbye Toby." And I do have to say, part <laughs> of the inspiration for this. Uh, so I do have to say, I I, I was I was uh, procrastinating. I didn't come up with a power ranking. So you guys were pestering me about it. And finally, I was just on my couch on Monday night, and what was on the ep the episode of The Office where they talk about the old people and ageism, and he brings in uh, a Dunder, right? And uh, he has the pictures of of uh, the old lady from Titanic. Can you remember Terry? Old lady from Titanic, oh. the guy in uh, a big who's on the piano um, with uh, Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah where's, Robert the, where's the beef lady? And one, oh, uh, Ben Kingsley. Anyway, <laughs> I know that has nothing to do with anything, but I thought, okay, well, let's talk about old actors because that's a great episode. Oh, only Michael Scott. Yeah, only Michael Scott. Uh, what's more memorable, that episode or the uh, the uh, diversity training? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I, that's tough. But I, diversity what, tomorrow because today is almost over. One of my one of my favorite <laughs> things about the episode, the the, the senior episode, is uh, Pam and Jim say, "Hey, didn't you already use um, Ben Kingsley before?" Oh yeah, you already <laughs> used the picture from Big. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Todd, you need to watch The Office. Okay, Todd, number two. Uh, my number two is my 1970s uh, submission. It was on, nominated for an Oscar in 1974 at age 78. Is Lee Strasberg in The Godfather Part mm. Two? Uh, he's a well, I mean, Lee Strasberg is a legendary acting coach, but uh, and this is one of like the very best acted movies of all time. 
And but it's characters like Hyman Roth that make part two so special because he I mean he's 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 fascinating. He's uh it's a smaller character. Like I, I feel like the the other actors are just like sitting there and they're like, okay, we'll just like let him do his thing when he gives his big monologue. Like I feel like he like never has a shirt on in the movie. Uh, but I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. He's like his, his full acting talent is on full display. He's just like a king on his throne. He is the he is the godfather of that movie. And uh, yeah, Lee Strasberg in the Godfather Part Two. That's what I'm going with. Yeah. Honestly, I don't remember enough of that movie. It's been too long since I've seen it to really to have really picked him. Me neither. I've always thought that that was a really curious Oscar nomination. I don't doubt that he's really good in the movie because he's like the guru of acting, but you just haven't seen the movie enough. I mean, it is three and a half hours in all fairness. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of other people in it too. I know. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great supporting (coughs) characters. I I was honestly going to go with Michael Gazzo, but he, uh, I, I apparently he wasn't 70 yet. He looked at, he looked more than, (laughs) looked at more than Lee Strasberg, but okay. All right. Well, number two on my list is a fairly probably predictable Terry pick, but I don't really care um, because I I think it deserves to be on the list. This is my submission from the 80s. It is the one submission on my list that is an Oscar winning uh, role. Uh, It is at the age of 80, Jessica Tandy in Driving Miss Daisy. Now, it's say what you want about the movie. I know this isn't necessarily everyone's favorite Oscar winning best picture movie, but I really like it. And her performance is amazing, especially as I mean, it covers a lot like what 50 years throughout the course of this movie too. And for something like that to be done with uh, someone in their eighties is impressive. And she's, she's got so much, so much life to her and uh, is able to portray the nuances of this kind of complex character very, very well. And uh, I, I always, uh, I, I always thought she w- she just gave an amazing performance in this and totally deserved her Oscar for it. So yeah, number two on my list, Jessica Tandy, Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, I was I was looking at her for that, or like Fried Green Tomatoes or something, mm-hmm. or like her co-starring Driving Miss Daisy and some of his recent stuff. But yeah, yeah. Driving with Daisy is, is not a bad movie. I mean, this is probably not the best you know venue to talk about it. It's just a movie that shouldn't have won Best Picture. But it's actually... Well, there's that, yeah. But it's actually like a pretty interesting movie that I think has more subtlety and, and nuance than people realize to it. And she is really good in that movie. Um, it just, you know, it gets it gets kind of misconstrued in some ways, but it shouldn't have won Best Picture. But it's, you know, it's, it's a solid movie with a good lead performance. Yeah, I think I have it I have it number two of the best. I have it number two of the year, and it's number two of the best picture nominees. I've got Dead Poet Society over it. Okay, well then for you, it, it's uh, it's not a problem that it's that high. For me, it's like number maybe fifteen of that year. Well, yeah. maybe not that low. I don't know, but it's not it's not in my top five. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Zach, number two. Okay, for my number two, we're going back to the nineteen sixties. We're going to France, and the film is called The Two of Us, directed by Claude Berry. Uh, Claude Berry later directed Jean de Florette and Man of the Spring, um, along with My Father's Castle and My Mother's Glory. Um, and uh, The Two of Us stars the legendary... Is the title Fred- of the movie nominated for an Oscar this year? <laughs> like What's the that? foreign film? 
Is it? The Two of Us? Yeah. Yeah, I, like, I, I think there is another film called The Two of Us. Oh, it's not, it was not for Golden Globe, not the Oscar, but yeah. Yeah, I was looking it up on IMDb, and it kept redirecting me to some 2019 movie that I'd never heard of. But the 1960s Two of Us from 1967 uh, stars a French actor named Michel Simon. And I have the Criterion DVD here, and I, I want you to take a look at uh, Michel Simon. And, you know, I, I agree with Terry's pick of Lawrence Tierney, but if you're talking the best look for an old guy, I mean, it really has to be this guy right here. I mean, he isn't that an extraordinary face? Like he, he looks, looks like, like Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is how I want to look when I'm this age. Like this is this is just a, an, an amazing look. And the only way that I can really compare his performance in this movie, he's like, did you ever watch those? Um, well, obviously, you watch, you watch Chris Farley on YouTube, right? I was more thinking like Chris Farley on The Letterman Show when he would do those crazy entrances. Like, this guy doesn't look like he's very mobile, but he does some crazy shit in this movie. Like, he runs around a lot. He, like, throws apples in the air. He's, like, uh, he's, he's a great cook. He's also an anti-Semite who likes the Nazis. And uh, over the course of the movie, he forms a relationship with this young boy who uh, is Jewish during World War II. This movie could not be made today for several reasons. Um, in, I mean, obviously, you listen to the plot. It sounds like it's a movie that is trying to kind of have a resurrection arc for the for the uh, the Michelle Simon character, and it does a little bit. There's also this kind of odd undercurrent in the movie where the boy has to hide uh, being naked around these people because they will tell he's circumcised. Obviously, that's not something that could ever fly in 2021. But it is a really interesting movie about this guy who's super, super prejudiced. He's the grandpa type. He smokes a pipe, talks about how horrible the Jews are. And the movie kind of has this subversive thing where, you know, he talks about how, oh, well, you don't look like a Jew because, you know, you have, you don't, your nose is not like a Jew and your eyes aren't like a Jew. And of course, he's just, uh, re, you know, reinforcing um, how, how stupid uh, stereotypes and prejudices are. Uh, it's a really sweet movie. Um, it's definitely like a kind of grandfather, grandkid kid movie with this backdrop of World War II. Um, it's not it, really dark in a lot of ways. It's actually kind of light and inspirational and sweet. And uh, the guy's really amazing. He's like mobile, runs around a lot. He plays with the kid a lot um, and while he's not spouting off about Jews. Uh, but it's funny. And um, I don't know. I, I've, always, I've always been a fan of this movie. And uh, one of the better French movies from the 1960s. Definitely more in the kind of mainstream French canon by that point. Claude Berry made movies that were usually set in the French countryside. This is yet another one of them. And uh, he's just a great old guy. You know, he's an old guy who weighs like 230 pounds. But you know he's light on his feet. It's pretty pretty impressive. So I don't know what else this guy did. Apparently, I was reading Ebert's review of it. It's it seems like he was very big in older roles, like Lawrence Tierney. Maybe he was a Lawrence Tierney in France. This is a good Criterion, by the way. Very rare and out of print. I spent uh, a lot of money on this one. So maybe I'll give it a full length review sometime. There we go. There we I think go. you just did. Okay. <laughs> Some good extra features on this, you know, it's got everything. They didn't come out with a Blu-ray though, sadly, because now it's out of print, but maybe it will come back. All right, all right. Todd, number one. My number one comes from the 2000s and uh, it's an actor, he's one of my favorites. He basically looked the exact same, uh, uh, like basically 50 to 70 from like 1980 until Welcome to Mooseport. And that is Gene Hackman in The Royal Tenenbaums. 
Uh, and it's it's about the least likely Wes Anderson character actor you could possibly think of. But you could tell he's having a blast playing this movie. He's like funny and he's mean. He's kind of despicable. But of course, the movie still has heart because it's a Wes Anderson movie. But I could have seen it being like a Bill Murray movie or something. But casting a guy like Gene Hackman who can carry the movie, it's like having Ray Fiennes at Grand Budapest Hotel. It takes it to a different level. And he, he's like, it's like one of like the three or four best performances of his career. And it's one of the weirder Oscar snubs the last you know, 20 years or whatever, last couple decades, I guess I would say. And um, I don't know, I'm not even the biggest fan of the movie, but Hackman is amazing in it. And uh, he's one of my favorite actors. And uh, yeah, he's, yeah, I mean, that's about all I got to say. He's, it's a great performance. And I didn't even know he was 70 at that point because I could (laughs) never tell. Yeah, you know, I mean, one recurring theme on our list so far has been old people who can run around and like, there's some really fun scenes that he has with Ben Stiller's kids in that movie where they like run across the street and they, don't they like go on bumper cars or something like that. But the scene that I always remember that I think is just great acting from that movie is when he tells Angelica Houston, his ex-wife, that he's dying and that is a lie or is it? And uh, she slaps him and she's so furious, but like his facial reactions to that scene are great. And um, you know, he was, he was one of the best and this was kind of his swan song. More so than Welcome to Mooseport, okay? This is the way he should be remembered in the 2000s, the end of his career. I still haven't seen the Royal Tenenbaums. Wow. I know, I know. Wes Anderson is kind of a big... I mean, I've seen... I was going to say that. my favorite Wes Anderson I've I've seen Fantastic Mr. Fox, and I've seen Grand Budapest Hotel. That's all the Wes Anderson I've seen. Well, I mean, I saw Royal Tenenbaums when I was in the theater. What hold I both of Sorry, you were talking. Ahead, talk. I couldn't hear either of you. I was saying you didn't see Moonrise Kingdom. I I, nope. I assumed you nope. seen really? Wow. I ever saw Moonrise Kingdom, Isle for Dogs, Life Aquatic, Rushmore. Wow. But, uh, Royal Tenenbaums is my favorite, and I saw it in the movie theater, and I thought, wow, this guy, this director's got style, and Gene Hackman's kicking ass in this movie. I loved it. Also yeah, I, on the Criterion I know, I knew, collection. Yeah, yeah, that was one of those where the, like the the original re- DVD release was a Criterion, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Like like several of Wes Anderson's movies. Life Aquatic, they did that too. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, my number one is from the 2010s and was actually also a uh, first release was the Criterion, um, and it's actually I'm gonna go. It's a three way tie because I really didn't want to pick. My three-way tie is Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, all for The Irishman. Nice. Um, and I think if you're going to have a tie, this is the tie to have because you have these three legends of acting that all come together for one epic movie directed by Martin Scorsese. And when I say epic, I mean three and a half hours long epic. Um, and I think, let's see here, I think De Niro and Pesci were 76 and Pacino was 79 when this movie was made, which you would never know because they are all like on top of their game and, and producing some of the best work of their career. Um, I, I wasn't the hugest fan of the movie. I thought it was very, very good. I didn't think it was a masterpiece that a lot of people thought it was, but uh, the strength of the movie was definitely the acting that came from these three. Um, The De Niro snub for the, for the, Oscar nomination was crazy, but, um, but yeah, when I, when I started thinking about just great performances over 70, 
Um, if I'm if I'm not going with you know Anthony Hopkins and the father, which was the inspiration for the list, well, that and apparently Michael Scott. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm going I'm going with these three and the Irishman. And I think one of the things that made this hard is because if I had my way, I would have gone with like all five of my picks from the last like 15, 20 years. I think Todd said that earlier too. And that's because you have these incredible legends of acting from that hit their peak in like the seventies that, um, that all started to, that kept on putting out decent work, uh, in the last decade or so. So, uh, yeah, I had the opportunity. I went with it three way tie for first. You can't blame me, right? That one I will accept. <laughs> Usually it's cheating, but I, I mean, I, I get it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, if I had to pick one, I was going to talk about all three of them anyways. So I'm just going to cheat and go with it. All right. Zach, number one. Well, the reason I was hesitant to do this list was because I thought number one would be so obvious that everyone would just be saying Merlot and we would just be talking about the same thing. I cannot believe that this performance hasn't even come up yet. I mean, I, I'm I'm amazed. Well, I I did not include Anthony Hopkins. I mean, he would be number one. I'm not talking about Anthony Hopkins. I'm talking about my performance from the 1980s, and that is the Academy Award-winning performance by Henry Fonda in On Golden Pond. Mm. How uh, how I mean, you both love that movie more than I do. I mean, I, was I haven't seen On Golden Pond. What? Well, okay. I know Todd loves it more than I do. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the movie too. It's it's a great movie, and um, I actually had a chance. I didn't rewatch the whole thing, but I watched like the first hour of it not too long ago. It holds up really well, and you know we have these discussions about stage bound movies that are based on plays and how they translate to the screen. Um, Mark Rydell is not like a really well known director, but he did a really great job in that movie. That movie never feels like a play. It feels really organic. Um, now, I said Henry Fonda, but I could just make it a tie and go Catherine Hepburn, too. But I think what adds so much um, uh, more poignancy to the Henry Fonda role is, of course, he was dying over the course of the production of the movie. He died months afterward. Uh, Jane Fonda accepted the Oscar on his behalf. I think he died maybe a few weeks after that. And I recently also watched Jane Fonda in Five Acts, the documentary on HBO, which is a really great documentary. She talks a lot about her complicated relationship with Henry Fonda. And specifically, she talks about the scene where uh, her character talks with Norman at the, at the uh, you know, the, by the marina. And uh, she says that, you know, uh, Henry Fonda never liked to improvise. Everything had to go perfectly right according to plan. But she wanted to improvise for one scene. And so there's one moment where she reaches out, it's a very tender moment, she reaches out her hand and touches his, I believe it's his like knee, and Henry Fonda breaks down, and the camera immediately cuts away. And I feel like that just personifies the fact that this was a performance very much grounded in the reality of that actor's life, his complicated relationships with family. He had never met Katherine Hepburn prior to the making of that movie. Um, but you know, when your when your most iconic, most memorable performance in a long and storied career is your final one, uh, that has to be noteworthy and mentioned on this list. So I know Todd's in agreement with me, but he's amazing in that movie, and it's a very well deserved Oscar. No, no honorary award whatsoever. Even though he had he had won the honorary award before that before that movie. So crazy. Yeah, I didn't want to just go with too much Oscar-nominated stuff, and obviously, I mean, I only went with a couple, but yeah, that that's obviously one of the top ones, and one of the first ones I thought of as well. Her, him and Catherine Hepburn, because yeah, that is a top 25 movie. 
I mean, it's hard to choose between them, but I feel like Catherine Hepburn was over 70 for her entire career. So there's a lot of movies you could probably choose from, yeah. but Henry Fonda for him to, to it, it, I think well, that's she also was younger. <laughs> she was a little younger. And I, I think his role is the trickier one because you can also see that he's losing it a little bit, but he's still got this kind of like, kind of like the, the, the character that I mentioned from goodbye solo. He's not a particularly likable guy. Like he's kind of like senile and kind of miserly, but he's lovable too. And I, there's just a lot, there's so much grounded in reality about that performance. I think it's a really brave, daring performance. And uh, it's a movie that has aged, I think pretty well. Could do a deep dive of it. This year. There we go. Maybe, maybe we should. But there's only like five characters. That's the problem. Who's who's the biggest stick man in that movie? Well, I guess I guess the biggest stick man in that movie is is pretty obviously the Dabney Dabby Coleman character, but um I don't know about uh high roller big Tim Award. That's maybe true. maybe the maybe the the trees by the by the lake. I don't know. All right. Yeah, I need to watch that one. I know, I know, I know. Todd, you got any honorable mentions? Yeah, I have a lot. Uh, okay, so <laughs> the 2010s, I had Joe Pesci in The Irishman, Burt Reynolds in The Last Movie Star, which was probably his best performance he ever gave at age 82, and he died right after it. Harry Dean Stanton in Lucky at age 90, Robert Redford in All Is Lost, Judy Dench in Skyfall, Emmanuel Riva and Jean-Louis Trignant in uh, Amour, and Michael Parks in Red State were all over 70, and then my 2000s ones I had, Frank Langella and Frost Nixon, which I thought Terry was going to be all over. Oh, uh, I didn't even think of that. Rip Torn in uh, the Iris Sachs movie 40 Shades of Blue, James Garner and Jenna Rollins in The Notebook, Clint Eastwood in Milling Dollar Baby. The only thing I wrote down from the 90s, I didn't even have one on my list, was Jason Robards in Magnolia. I thought the yeah, 90s was the cheapest one. one. Uh, the 80s, I had Peggy Ashcroft in uh, Passage to India and Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn in On Golden Pond. And from the 60s, I had written down Ruth Gordon in Rosemary's Baby. So yeah, a lot of options. Uh, it was not an easy list to narrow down. So thanks, Zach. Yeah. Uh, so for my honorable mentions, I didn't have a whole lot other ones written down. I really struggled to come up with some good names. Um, but a couple I had, um, I had Harrison Ford in the force awakens for the 2010s, um, two thousands. I had Alan Arkin, little miss sunshine. Um, those were a couple I had written down, but a couple of my, of my favorite ones that went, you gotta be kidding me. They're not over 70. Um, was, uh, Jack Nicholson was in the departed at age 69. And, um, and then the other one that I thought for sure did you know Spencer Tracy only died at age 67, even though he looked like he was 75 when he made Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? I thought for sure that was going to be one of them, but it wasn't. That's a good one, so. yeah. I, I was all over that. I'm like, oh, yeah, Spencer Tracy's going to be on my list. What? <sighs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I had two of those as well. Paul Newman in Nobody's Fool. I believe he was also 69. And then Jack Lemmon in uh, Glengarry Glen Ross and Shortcuts. Mm -hmm. I mean, those were right before his 70th. Yeah, birthday. I thought for sure he was over <laughs> 70 in Glengarry. That was going to be on my list. <laughs> yeah. I also had uh, Max von Sydow in Minority Report, Jean Rochefort from Man on the Train. Did anyone say Bruce Dern in Nebraska? Did we mention that? No. Okay, no. That's, that was on my list. Um, Bob Barker in Happy Gilmore, Alan Alda in Marriage Story, <laughs> James Gardner and Jenna Rollins in The Notebook. 
John Marriott in Dog Day Afternoon. He played Howard the guard. I know he only has like one scene in that movie, but it's a really good scene. You remember him, right, Todd? The old guard yeah. who has a heart attack and you know, um, Gloria Stewart in Titanic, Sheila Florence in A Woman's Tale, which is this really good Australian movie, and Dustin Hoffman in Barney's version, where he plays Paul Giamatti's dad. And of course, Catherine Scorsese. I mean, this list really is in honor of her. It's sort of the elephant in the room, but. I thought for sure she was going to be on your list. I was <laughs> when you I started mentioning too things like her, I was like, oh, did Zach completely space that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I also forgot Ali Oscar Shabazi from A Separation. He plays the father, the elderly father in that movie. And he was also over the age of 90 when he made that. Wow. Impressive. No lines in it, but all in the face. All right. Well, now now is the moment of truth. We are we are now predicting Adam's list. Winner gets to pick our next power rankings category. Todd, take your stab. Okay, my number five. I have Paul Racy in Sound of Metal. Number four, Alan Arkin in Little Miss Sunshine. Number three, Gloria Stewart in Titanic. Number two, Morgan Freeman in The Dark Knight Rises. And number one, Henry Travers in It's a Wonderful Life. All right. All right. So here's mine. Uh, number five, I have uh, Imogene Coca in National Lampoon's Vacation, who plays, nice. uh, yeah, the it's the ant, right? That That's with them? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Aunt Edna. Yeah, Aunt Edna. That's Aunt yeah. Edna. Yeah. Number four, Bruce Stern in Nebraska. Number three, Gloria Stewart, Titanic. Number two, Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino. And number one, I have Henry Travers in It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> okay. Well, you're probably going to win. You have more uh, more likely options than I do. Zach, what do you got? All right, I want Catherine, number five, Catherine Scorsese in Goodfellas. Number four, Morgan Freeman in Invictus. Number three, Lawrence Tierney in Reservoir Dogs, although I realize now I have two 90s films, but whatever. Number two, Xu Zhen Zhao for The Farewell. And number one, Henry Fonda for On Golden Pond. Uh, Adam messed this up. List up. Okay. What? How did he mess it up? <laughs> All right. Okay. So he says this was harder than I originally thought. Dude, okay. Honorable mentions, which are better than half his list are Judy Dench for Skyfall, Ed Asner for Up. That's a great call, by the way. Mm. And uh, Max von Sydow in Minority Report. Okay, number five, Gloria Stewart Titanic for the 90s. Uh, number four, Henry Fonda on Golden Pond. Okay, good, good. Number three, Joe Pesci, The Irishman. All right, we're, we're, still, we're still doing good. Number two is Anthony Hopkins for The Father. He was informed that this list was in honor of Anthony Hopkins in The Father, which usually means he's disqualified. And uh, and number one was the uh, 69-year-old performance from Jack Nicholson in The Departed. So. Uh, I got what? I got one of them. I got one. Yeah, I got one. We all got but one. I got Gloria Stewart. It, I had her number three, and it, she was number five. I had her number three. She was number five. And I had Henry Fonda, and he was number four. I and had you had him number one, right? Yeah. But I also said Max, Max von Sydow, my honorable mentions. Well, yeah, but I, I had... Uh, he said Judy Dench I, in his honorable mentions, yeah. too. And Joe Pesci. 
Yeah, but Joe Pesci was on my list in my three-way tie. <laughs> well, yeah. Catherine, or, yeah, whatever. On Girl and Pond was on my honorable mentions, too. I don't know. That's a, I don't know. That's a weird call. Zach, Zach had it ranked number one, but it wasn't his number one. I didn't even know he had seen On Golden Pond. Has he seen The Father? Yes. He, he texted me right after he saw it and said he was still, completely devastated I by it. I would have put The Father on my list, but I didn't think he had seen it. He saw it this week. Tricky. Adam's That's review of On Golden Pond is not on our website. Terry. Oh! Ooh, I got, we got a conspiracy theory. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Great call by Adam, though, on Ed Asner for Up. I mean, doing a voice performance yeah, like that, cool. that's a good yeah. call. Maybe he's going to just... be upset he didn't say Paul Racy, too. I know he is. Oh, yeah. He's going to be really upset. Maybe Adam can just come up with the power. Well, or maybe he's not because he said Anthony Hopkins. Uh, like he's, he, he said, Anthony Hopkins is greater than Paul Racy. Maybe. No, know. but he has, he has Sound of Metal higher on his list than he does The Father. But Adam doesn't does Adam screwed it up by putting Nicholson on there, so he doesn't True. deserve to pick the power rankings. Maybe we should make Arlette pick the power rankings. <laughs> Let's do it. Arlette has to pick our category? Yeah. <laughs> because Adam screwed up too much. <laughs> so Dude. who gets a point? Does nobody get a point? I don't know. Arlette gets a point. I'm or not we putting all, another person get, on my list. <laughs> we all get a third of a point. Oh, that's bad. That, that is bad. That is bad. The father is now Adam's number three of uh, of 2020, by the way. So that's behind Sound of Metal. True. True. Well, I don't know. Maybe we'd have to debate about that. That's interesting. All right. Well, we'll fig- should we figure out? Should we just say no points are awarded? And may God have mercy on our souls. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I like. I thought this was a really good power rankings. Because, it was a great category. Yeah, therefore I should get the point. We had no overlap. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, yeah, and there was well, really no Adam and Zach did. Oh, we uh, uh, yeah, a little bit with Henry Fonda, but is that is that the uh, should that be the tiebreaker that they actually had overlap in their list? Yeah, well, and, I and, I, and I predicted it. I kind of did too with Joe Pesci. But you didn't predict it, though. I predicted true. it. He was further off on his one that he got right, though. That's true. Yeah, but I, no one was going to pick Jack Nicholson. <laughs> this is just riveting entertainment <laughs> right now. Uh... All right. So... Maybe. so... Maybe we'll ask nope. Adam what he thinks after he listens to it. Adam, who do you think should win? It's me. Yeah, right? he'll pick yeah. who wait, who gets the point, but, <laughs> but I don't know who's picking pick, the category. Yeah. Arlette sure. picks the category. I, I think that's a good idea. Yeah, uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm down. We'll go that. with that. <clears throat> For those who don't know, Arlette is Adam's wife. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that was a train wreck. Um, trivia time. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. And uh, let's see here. Todd won trivia last time, so Zach and I had to watch something. Uh, Zach, why don't you go first and tell us what you watch? 
Okay, I watched The Invisible Man, the uh, last year version, not the older one, uh, from 2020, directed by Lee Wannell um, and starring everybody's favorite actress, Elizabeth Moss. This was in Adam's top 10, although, gosh, now I don't know if it even makes his top 10 after all these recent additions to his list. And Todd is a fan of the movie, too. Um, Moss plays uh, Cecilia, who at the beginning of the movie runs away from an abusive um, relationship. Her boyfriend is kind of this Elon Musk type uh, elusive tech genius in Silicon Valley but who's also pathological and aggressive and mean. And so she runs away and she flees and stays at uh, her friend's house, uh, played by Aldous Hodge. And she finds out later that her boyfriend actually killed himself. Um, but she is convinced that uh, all is not what it seems and that he has actually developed this uh, crazy plot to uh, be invisible and take uh, revenge on her for leaving him. Um, you know, Elizabeth Moss is the best thing about this movie. Uh, she's great in everything she does. Um, unfortunately, the rest of the movie I don't think holds up uh, particularly well. Um, I really have two issues with the movie. Um, one is that um, I wish that the movie had been more, uh, how should I say, ambiguous about the character's subjectivity. There is never a doubt that Elizabeth Moss is right and everybody else is wrong. And so for the first hour of this movie, it does that kind of quasi-Hitchcock thing where you know she's the only person who knows what's going on and everybody's like, oh, she's crazy. She couldn't be right. No, she's right. So it's just an idiot plot for the first hour of this movie. And it's like her just convincing people, no, 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 this guy actually is coming back and this thing is really happening. And everyone's like, that couldn't be the case. I get pretty bored of that. I wish instead the movie had been more like, hmm, well, maybe she's crazy, but maybe she's not. I don't know. The movie's not called, you know, Crazy Woman Tries to Convince Other People. It's called The Invisible Man for a Reason. The other thing I didn't like about it was in the second half of the movie, um, this character, uh, her uh, boyfriend, played by Oliver Jackson Cohen, basically turns into a cyborg. And not only is he is he this millionaire Elon Musk tech genius who lives on the ocean side and is improbably handsome, looks like he could have been cast in Fifty Sh Shades of Grey, but he is also a killing machine. Maybe he was trained by um, Bob Odenkirk in Nobody. I don't know. Maybe he was a protege or something. But uh, somehow he also is able to just kick ass and is really um, just this maniacal genius who cannot be defeated. So that was really improbable too. This movie also is really long and it has, uh, this director was in love with this twist ending that occurs in the last 15 minutes that is really strained. And it's like, dude, just end your movie at the hour and a half point. We don't need the, the rest of this, uh, you know, exposition. It's, it's not very clever. It's not as clever as you think it is. Um, again, Elizabeth Moss, kind of like her performance in Shirley, best thing about the movie. I appreciate that this movie was not starring Johnny Depp and it's not in the dark uh, cinematic universe or whatever. Um, and it actually does have a sort of thoughtful lens and perspective about relationships. And it does it is more grounded in reality, at least for the first part of the movie. But ultimately I have to give it thumbs down because it doesn't, I, I don't think it takes a lot of risks and it just kind of gets stupid as it goes along. So two and a half stars, but you know, not a terrible uh, watch. And you know, I don't, I don't know what Adam saw in it, but uh, it's not a four-star movie for me by any means. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't that long, uh, but I don't. I, it's my number sixty of the year. I, I mean, I'm not in love with the movie either. But like, what I really loved about the movie was the design of the Invisible Man. I thought that alone should have gotten it nominated for Best Visual Effects. I, I thought it was like the level of like Terminator Two kind of uh, style of a villain. That that I mean I love and yeah obviously Elizabeth Moss is great but 
Yeah, I mean, I know Adam Adam adored the movie, but I mean, I I just thought it was a really entertaining movie for two hours. But okay, and wasn't it shortlisted for visual effects? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I it should have gotten it should it should have gotten all the way through. But and there's definitely like an ex machina vibe to it, um, and you know, it does some creative things, and I like when the movie. I do. I mean, I like movies where the character's trying to explain to everybody that, oh, I'm, maybe I'm not crazy after all, but it just gets a little redundant. It's like the movie needed to skip forward three beats in the screenplay to get to a point that was more compelling and interesting. So, I don't know. It needed a second draft or something like that, but uh, not, you know, not entirely terrible. Okay. Wow. Could have been a lot worse. I still have yet to see it. On Golden Pond, you should see before The Invisible Man. Probably, probably. And The Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, that too. All right. Well, uh, the movie I had to watch uh, for uh, for trivia is a movie that both Todd and Zach love. And I loved it too. It is the 2015 film Welcome to Me, uh, starring Kristen Wiig. And James Marsden and Linda Cardellini, Joan Cusack. Oh, who else is in this? Jennifer Jason Lee is in this. Tim Robbins, Wes Bentley, Alan Tudyk. I mean, it's got a huge cast for being such a small movie. Uh, but this movie was uh, was just wild and bizarre and different than almost anything else I'd ever seen. Uh, it is like Truman Show meets Network, kinda. Okay. Yep. I mean, uh, you could kind of, uh, that that's kind of where I, where I fell with it. You've got uh, the main character, um, Alice Klieg, played by Kristen Wiig, who uh, is got some um, what are the borderline personality disorder, and uh, she wins the lottery and decides to use her money to go to the local public access television station and buy. 150 or no what was it yeah 100 episodes of her own show uh where she would talk about herself and it was going to be called welcome to me and it is just her like working out her own personal problems and demons live on air for everyone else to hear um it is bizarre she she wants to ride out on a swan Okay. And then you have you've got uh Lindy Carlini who's her best friend. You've got James Marsden who's the money hungry um studio exec who realizes that he's got a cash cow in front of him that he can milk for as much as he can. Um Wes Bentley who's slowly falling in love with her who's the the brother of James Marsden. You've got Joan Cusack the producer who has to try and figure out how to make this show work. Um it is it is bizarre. And then you have Tim Robbins her therapist who uh is just trying to figure out what's going on it i mean it is it, it is a a crazy look into um into some uh mental illness but also at the same time just so much fun and ridiculous i think this came up um a couple weeks ago or maybe a couple months ago now todd i think remind me if i'm wrong but i think this was on your like highest war of the decade list yeah wasn't this it? was me as my choice yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And I totally agree because nobody other than Kristen Wiig could pull this off. Um, it, it, it is a total like Kristen Wiig special 
And uh, yeah, three and a half stars. This movie's insane. Well, Sheila Piven is is a unique character. She is married to Adam McKay and the like the older sister of Jeremy Piven. So I mean, she's got some serious <laughs> comedy in her veins and uh, very weird comedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies of 2015. And uh, yeah, obviously, Kristen Wiig. She's my best actress winner. One of the <laughs> one of the weirder best performances I've ever seen. She yeah, it's just bizarre. It's just bizarre. And oh, and then there's then there's the uh, the the uh, film student who's uh, who's watching it and like studying it. It's like what a, what a great call in diversity for the reenactment. Why did why did you why did you make that that bold choice? I don't know. She was just the prettiest that day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's so uh, just so like th- this was. I, I'd be surprised if this wasn't made as just a Kristen Wig like vehicle and i don't think it was because it was just like this random indie movie that she got but i can't imagine anybody else filling that role yeah it's a classic and it's cult for sure it's the kind of movie where like you're watching and people walk into the room and they're like what is this and um those are the best kind of movies Mm -hmm. yeah yeah for sure I love just the gradual level of frustration that like Joan Cusack and all the production assistants as the movie goes along. Like, I think that everybody can associate with those feelings a lot and just their faces and their reactions are priceless. I, I, Tim Robbins is one of my favorites in it too, because he, he's just level headed the whole time and is like the, the voice of the audience in this. It's like, why are you doing this? It's like, I'm not letting you in because is it because I put you on the show without asking? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, yeah, I, I love it. It was great. It was great. I think there could have been a couple other actors. I think Aubrey Plaza could have done it and Charlene Yee could have done it, but I, it's, it's hard. It, Kristen Wiig does do an amazing job of pulling it off though. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that Todd. It is trivia time. Tell us, uh, tell us what we're doing. All right. So I have a couple categories. Uh, since it's Oscar season, I'm doing a couple vaguely related to Oscar uh, categories. One, uh, the first one is going to be the movies that are on the AFI top 100. Uh, either one of them that are not that were not nominated for Best Picture. There's 32 of them total on either the the 2007 or 2000. Or, to, or 1998 list that were not nominated for Best Picture that appear on the AFI Top 100 list. Wow. Which, 32 is a pretty big number considering AFI makes part of their criteria the uh, uh, how, how well they did with awards. Okay. Uh, since Terry liked the movie, I gave him more. I will go with Zach first. <laughs> <laughs> Modern Times. Modern Times is correct. City Lights. Damn you, Terry. City Lights is also correct. Bringing Up Baby. Bringing Up Baby is correct. Do the Right Thing. Do the Right Thing is correct. 
Some like it hot. Some like it hot is correct. Toy Story. Nice. Toy Story is also correct. Now you're saying both. You're accepting both lists. Yes, he said yeah. both lists. Okay, the Sixth Sense. No shit. I'm sorry. That was nominated. I can't take it back. I'm sorry. He he, he had yet I, to I didn't rule. Say anything. So yeah. Okay. Oh, so you're, you're good. good. I'm sorry. I don't know why that. Okay. Um. 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 So, uh. <laughs> shoot, Psycho. Yeah, there we go. I was wondering if someone was going to get that. We just mentioned it last week. <laughs> that's correct. Swing time. Ooh. Swing time. That's a good one. That's correct. Um, Sullivan's Travels. That is also correct. Oh, it is on the list. Okay. Uh, Birth of a Nation. It was on one of the lists, right? I don't have that written down. Was that on... I think it was on the first list. Boy, I, I'd be surprised if that was on it. I, I, I know there was another Griffith film that was on it, but... Okay, hold on. I mean, I, that sounds right, but I, I didn't come... I'm almost positive it was on the first list. This was on, was I, on I got this list. from a Sporkle list, so, I mean, uh, there is a possibility of an issue. <laughs> okay, yeah, that was... Okay, Birth of a Nation was number 44 on the 1997 list, so... Sport the whatever Sporkle quiz uh, screwed that up, so that is also correct. Intolerance, the other Griffith film. That's not on this list either. But hold on, make sure you just search it. See, I I thought that usually they go with intolerance as the more acceptable. Well, intolerance is number forty. Wait, no, hold on, yeah. 49 on the 2007 list. So I don't know. Okay, so I, I have a flawed list here. So I'm going to have to double check like everything now. <laughs> uh, the general. Yeah, I was going to go with that. See, I don't have that written down either. That was like oh, that's 15 not, that's on the, new on the list. list. Uh, on the 2007 list, it was definitely on the list. Yeah, that's got to be there. I'm at a slight advantage having been a frequent listener to the Unspooled podcast. It was on one of the lists. It was on the 2007 list. Yeah. And number 18. Oh, I said 15. I was close. So my, yeah, so the whatever list I had is completely screwed up. So, okay. Well, keep going. <laughs> uh, the Big Sleep. That is not on my list. So, okay, I will double check here in a second. It might not be. No, that's not on the list. All right. So All it right. is six to six. I got two more. Okay, okay, throw them out there. Duck Soup and A Night at the Opera. Those sound right. Duck Soup is Another correct. Night at the that's, Opera is correct. That's the only reason I've seen those. Well, um, okay, so maybe wait, maybe some of these movies were nominated for Best Picture. Was Intolerance nominated for Best Picture? That was 1916. Okay, no. Okay, and the general, and that was before. That was yeah. 26. Okay. That's all I got. Okay. Well, <laughs> the rest of this list included stuff like 2001 A Space Odyssey, Blade oh. Runner, Close Encounters yeah. of the Third Kind, Easy Rider, mm. King Kong, North by Northwest, King Kong, Rear Window, oh, yeah. obviously Vertigo, Sophie's Choice, Singing yeah, the, the Rain, the, the rest of the Hitchcock movies that we missed. Yeah, we, we, we missed those. And of course, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Oh gosh, 
Yeah, that did not go as well as I thought. Thank you, Sporkle, whoever that asshole was. I'm going to look who up who it was, and I'm going to yell at him. Um, <laughs> but I thought we did pretty well. Yeah, yeah, you knocked out 12 of the... I have no idea how many there actually are now. So. <laughs> uh, my other category... So it has been 45 years since All the President's Men was uh, uh, released in theaters this month and uh that obviously stars dustin hoffman so i want to know the other 21 movies that dustin hoffman was in that were nominated for any oscar and if you can name one of the oscars that it was nominated for you get another half point Ooh. and this isn't like since all the president's men this is this is total movies that dustin hoffman has been in there are 21 movies that he has been in other than all the president's men that have been nominated for a single Oscar or more. And so I have to start with Terry. Well, I'm going to start with, uh, with Barney's version for best makeup. That is <laughs> correct. <laughs> nice. I'm going to go with my favorite movie of all time, Kramer versus Kramer, which I believe won best picture. That is also correct. I'm going to go with uh, Rain Man, which I believe won Best Picture. Another correct choice. Uh, the Graduate, which won Best Director. That is correct. Tootsie was nominated for Best Picture. Also correct. Uh, Marathon Man which I think was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but I'm not sure. That is correct. All right, cool. Uh, Midnight Cowboy won Best Picture. Oh, yeah. That it did. Uh, Wag the Dog for Screenplay? That is correct. Is also He was also nominated for Best Actor. Wow. Um, Five. Stranger Than Fiction for screenplay? I think that's wrong, though. That is wrong. It should have been, though. It could have been. That movie's brilliant. Zach, do you have anything else? You are, let's see, you're 10, 12, you are down 14 to 12. Um... Well, I have a title, but I think I'm going to butcher it. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Papillon. Okay, Papillon is correct. Okay. One more. You, you want to take a stab at what the uh, what the nomination was? Oh, for Papillon? Yeah. Uh, uh, sound. I don't know. No, it was nominated for score. Okay. But that's not... They, they, you can keep going. Lenny? Lenny is correct. Oh, best actor. Best actor is correct as long as, as well as best picture, yeah, and that gives you the win with a okay. twelve and a half points. And then can I can I say the crazy one? Yeah, hey, Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium. That is not correct. Oh, didn't that there get a like a, other ones? Like didn't that get like ones. a best makeup or something? I don't know. Uh, uh, what ones you missed? Straw, Straw Dogs was that nominated? That was nominated for score. Okay. You guys missed Kung Fu Panda 1 and 2. Uh, 
a series of unfortunate events was nominated for four Oscars. Uh, he Neverland. was in that. Finding yeah. Neverland. Oh, Terry. Sleepers was nominated for score. Hook was nominated for five Oscars. Dick Tracy was nominated for it looks like I think seven Oscars. Uh, some movie called Agatha. Who is Harry Kellerman and blah blah blah, whatever the title is. Little Big Man, and that was it. So you guys did actually really well. You you, you only missed like the obscure ones or ones that he has a big part in. But Zach is the trivia champion. All right. Quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. And Zach, you get to go first. Okay, so uh, my quote, I couldn't come up with a good one today. My quote comes from Lawrence Tierney. If I know, if I remember Lawrence Tierney, I would have gone back to the documentary and said Quentin Tarantino's quote about him or Tim Roth's quote, but I'm just going to go from Reservoir Dogs, and it's when, it's when Mr. Pink is upset at Lawrence Tierney for not being able to pick his own name, and he says, no, no way. Try it once, it don't work. You get four guys all fighting over who wants to be Mr. Black, but they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. No way, I pick. You're Mr. Pink. Be careful you're not Mr. Yellow. Awesome. Very nice. Very nice. All right, Todd. Okay, well, the uh, Screen Actors Guild Awards are on currently, uh, which I don't have on right now, but I'm going back to the speech by Brad Pitt last year at the Screen Actors Guild Awards that he was accepting for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And during his speech, he says, I want to thank uh, Margot Robbie, Margot Robbie's feet, Dakota Fanning's feet, Seriously, Quentin separated more women from their shoes than the TSA. Eh, eh, eh. <laughs> <laughs> it, what makes the quote is the eh, eh, eh. That, that's, what, that's what makes it. All right, well, uh, well, my quote comes from, I mean, honestly, if we were all being, being honest with ourselves, my quote comes from the number one performance by someone over, over 70. Because... When 900 years old you reach, look as good you will not. Hmm? I mean, Yoda. Yoda is, he was 900. He was 900 when he made that performance. How did Adam not have that on his list? I know, right? How did we not predict it? <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, with that, with Yoda, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Yoda, Brad Pitt, and Lawrence Tierney. Uh, that, that, that's Sounds what you get with right. the Almost Sideways podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, again, make sure you subscribe, rate, review. Make sure you also fill out your Oscar challenge ballot. See if you can p- predict the winners. We've got a few more weeks before the Oscars, um, but they are coming up quick. Three weeks from today? Three weeks from today, I think. Yeah. So make sure you do that. Uh, we'll be back at you soon with some more content. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.